Welcome to Leaders Recon, where we will be discussing leadership, warrior skills, and other unique opportunities within the G3 Leader Development Branch. I'm your host, Joshua Carr, and today we're going to be discussing National Training Center rotations. With us is Colonel Leland Blanchard, Chief of Training for the Army National Guard, to talk about his experiences at the National Training Center. Sir, welcome to the program. Thank you. appreciate uh, you having me on again. So for those in our audience who are not as familiar with your background, I know you spent a year in the California desert over there at NTC. Can you kind of expand on some of your uh, experience within NTC, but also like what made it motivated you to join the military? Okay, well, uh, so as, as you know, we've talked before, obviously, but, uh, you know, specific to, uh, uh, and probably germane to why I find JRTC and NTC to be uh, so fascinating. Uh, I enlisted in the Army after college kind of a lifelong dream. I just, I really like being outdoors. I love the idea of being around soldiers. So everything that uh, I thought the army should be, you know, when you're growing up and, you know, you're running around in the woods with your friends with tree branches, pretending they're rifles and hiding from each other. That, that is what motivated me to join. I enjoy the training aspect of it. I enjoy being out in the woods or <laughs> at NTC out in the desert. But I really enjoy doing our job, you know, so as a as an infantryman, I like I wanted to be an infantryman. And so uh, when I had the opportunity way back when to first go out to uh, JRTC and spend a couple of years there, jumped on that, enjoyed my time. Uh, it was an extraordinary experience. And so a few years later, a couple of years ago, when uh, the uh, when the powers that be asked if I'd be interested in going out to uh, the NTC, the National Training Center at Fort Irwin, California. To the surprise of many, I jumped all over it again. I really understood the experience that uh, I'd be able to go through out there. So went out there, enjoyed it, and uh, here I am today. So sir, when you look back to your accomplishments so far and experiences, what has impacted you most and why? stood out to you the most in your career? I think uh, as far as, achie- I guess, achievements or experiences, I'll I tell you, for me, the most rewarding thing that I've had in my career is just the opportunity to be around other soldiers. And so I, I say this a lot when I'm speaking to people, uh, to different groups or, uh, you know, going to different conferences. What an honor to be around young men and women like yourself that have joined after 9-11, right? And, and just show up every day prepared to work hard, to serve their country, to do something in service of something other than themselves. And that's, uh, I think, a fundamental difference uh, maybe between your generation and my generation of soldiers. So when I joined the Army, war was kind of a a concept. We were excited. Someday we might go to war. I I joined uh, sometime in the (laughs) mid-90s. You know, our our big thing was what if, right? And we were going through uh, transition, the world was changing, the wall had fallen, there were a lot of things going on. So it was kind of this theory, right, war. For folks who have joined since 9-11, you know, if you're 20, 21, 25 years old, you don't really remember much growing up when there wasn't war going on. So if you're 20 years old today, you don't remember a time that you watched the news where there weren't uh, soldiers deploying and serving overseas. And so when you ask what my biggest uh, achievement or what, what's, you know, what, uh, what's been a highlight in my career, I would tell you honestly, going to work every single day and being just absolutely motivated by the fact that we have young men and women who are still willing to come into the military today 
and serve despite the fact that every single day that they can remember in their life, uh, we've been overseas uh, somewhere fighting. So that actually transitions really well, sir, today. We're hoping to kind of dive into like different levels, the brigade, battalion, and the company for a national training center rotation. So I haven't actually attended a national training center rotation yet, but- uh, You got a lot to look forward to. <laughs> yes, yes. But my uh, brigade, the 45th, is scheduled for an NTC rotation next summer. So for brigades that are getting ready to go, in your experience, you know, what are some of the things that set up brigades for success? Sure. I think, uh, you know, at the brigade level, I think it's it really at, at echelon. It doesn't matter if you're a squad leader. It doesn't matter if you're a brigade commander. Uh, all the way through, it's really about blocking and tackling. It's about keeping it simple. Before you try to run a flea flicker, make sure that your offensive linemen know how to do basic pass protection. Don't get fancy before you've understood the the building blocks, the foundational experiences. And I think that's a lot of times what people, uh, when they show up, they really have this expectation that if I do this, then I'm going to win. And they kind of get ahead of themselves. And, and that's throughout the entire process. So my advice uh, really at all echelons is focus on the fundamentals, know your people, put the right people in the right jobs, and really build on throughout that training glide path, build on those foundational experiences. Because here's what I know, and here's what I've seen through uh, a lot of rotations, both as an observer uh, as a participant, uh, I have no idea anymore, 40, 50, I have no idea how many rotations anymore uh, between all of them. But uh, here's what I know. If you can block and tackle, if your squads are lethal, if you can do basic communications, if you can get your systems, the rest of it will take care of itself. Before you try to do all kinds of interesting things, if you, if you have squads that can go out and can be effective, you're going to do very well. But that's a lot harder uh, than it seems, I think. Even just getting to a, a CTC rotation is challenging with like moving all of your equipment and transportation out there. What is your advice to units in preparing and executing that to make it go as seamlessly as possible? Yeah, I think uh, so. I think what you just hit on is probably really uh, underestimated in the importance. And the reason I'll tell you that is if you start, it's like anything else. It's kind of like, uh, you know, a lot of us have played sports growing up. If for whatever reason, a couple of uh, small issues happen at the beginning of a football game, you throw an interception on the first possession, you fumble, and you find yourself down 21 to nothing, seven, eight minutes into the game, it changes everything about what you're trying to do. There's an anxiety level, right? And I think this happens as well uh, when units go out to, uh, whether it's National Training Center, whether it's uh, JRTC, or whether it's really deploying. You don't want to spend your, four, your first two, three, four days in the box trying to do all the things that you, you fell behind on, right? So you've got to set the conditions for success. Before you leave home station, make sure you have everything that you need. Make sure, again, blocking and tackling. Do you know how to properly load your vehicles up on, you know, if you're doing rail or if you're doing line haul, all those little things, making sure that you had a good packing plan so that when you get out to the NTC, when you're taking your stuff off, the important stuff is coming off first because you're going to run out of time. And this kind of uh, over those five days of RSOI, as you're trying, you, you just find yourself falling further and further behind because you spent three hours trying to find the thing that you packed 
at the front because you packed it first when you should have put, you needed it first, you should have put it on last. Those little things, if you find yourself and you see it time after time, people, organizations, if they fall behind starting at home station in the transportation process, you will see units that struggle because there's more and more tasks. It's harder and harder. People are spread throughout the formation. All of a sudden, you're not all at the same place that you've trained and you can't just walk down the hallway and get that tool that, um, I forgot to throw that in my vehicle or, hey, I needed that, that those extra batteries. Those things are things that you'll invest time in and all of a sudden you hit the box uh, as you move out. When you cross LD and you're already two or three days behind, and so the enemy's got an advantage. So for those in the audience who are not really as familiar with what a CTC rotation looks like, could you just kind of highlight some of like the major pieces? Sure. A CTC rotation. So the major pieces, obviously, uh, so you got to get there. And so there's a lot of stuff that happens at home station. And, and again, uh, as we've talked about, that's, that's where you're going to start building momentum mm -hmm. or not building momentum, or perhaps momentum in the wrong direction. So I would tell you that's that's the that's the foundational piece, getting yourself set the conditions. You got to deploy. You got to get there. Then when you get there, you've got all the efforts to kind of all the the drawing the prepo fleet, uh, getting your comms established, doing all the things that uh, your advon, uh, your torch party are doing. Again, finding yourself uh, kind of setting the conditions for success. Then you're going to begin RSOI. Uh, when you begin RSOI, uh, reception, staging, onward integration, onward movement integration, when you start that process, that's about five days. Hmm. That now uh, is contested. So it's not just go out there and, oops, we, you're going to have events that are happening. Uh, you are beginning the actual fight, just like you would if you deployed somewhere and you were staging to go across uh, into uh, combat. Right, you, you're not going to just believe that no one's going to try to influence your actions. During those five days, that's essentially when you are making sure that everything is ready to go. You are literally uh, taking about a month's worth of effort in putting into about five days. Then when you cross the, uh, uh, the line of departure, you start into, uh, now JRTC and NTC both are a little bit different in the way they do it. So we'll talk uh, about NTC. You're going to do about 10 days of uh, force on force, mm -hmm. and that is full up on forgiving the elements the enemy are in play. There is no, as we like to say, free chicken, right? There are no times where you get to do an administrative move. If you forgot, and I've seen this where people forgot an important piece uh, to refuel their vehicles, you don't get to go back and get it. Just like you wouldn't just be able to drive, you know, 100 miles back to get it. You have to wait till it gets shipped back to you. And in the meantime, you end up uh, fueling, transferring 5,000 gallons of fuel by gravity, which is a lot slower than a, a pump pushing. Uh, so during that 10 days, you're going to go through an offense, a defense, and then uh, either another offense, another defense, and uh, you know all the planning that goes into it. Then at NTC, you're going to transition into a brigade live fire. Phenomenal event. You are going to fire and maneuver. And it's a little bit different. So it's unique in the fact that you are going to maneuver through the impact area. There is no uh, offset fire. So if you are calling artillery in on, on a target, uh, you when you are done with the artillery, you're going to move across that very same uh, terrain. So 
it's uh, it's a great. I I just think it's an amazing opportunity uh, for soldiers to go through that experience. And then the real pain starts. Uh, you come out of the box, and you've got uh, you've got about eight to ten days to recover. So you got to do all the maintenance. You got to turn in everything. You got to clean everything. You got to prepare it to load. Then you got to get your uh, your unit on back to home station. So you do again about a month's worth of work in eight days. Only now you've been out in the uh, desert for 14 days. Uh, you're tired. Uh, your level of motivation uh, is really based on how well you and uh, your organization did. But it is, I would just tell you, it's a world-class experience. It is literally what many other countries around the world have tried to emulate. So they come to our CTCs. They are simply amazed at what we're doing. Then they go back to their countries and they try to build something uh, similar. So, yeah, an amazing, it's, it is, uh, so I often describe it as, uh, say, the AFC or NFC championship game. It's not the Super Bowl, because that's combat, if you will. But if you want to do well, if you want to make it to the big game, you probably need to win uh, your championship game. So that kind of actually dives into my next question, which is, Black Horse, for instance, at the National Training Center has a tremendous amount. Bad guys. Yeah, they have a tremendous amount of experience doing rotations over and over again. Do units win tactically against them, or what does success look like for a brigade at NTC? Yeah, uh, so absolutely. Absolutely you can win. And I I think, uh, so what you just alluded to, I often hear units say, well, they're cheating or it's not fair. It's absolutely fair. Uh, they have to cook and feed themselves in the field. They're not, I mean, they're, they are in the field just like you. Now, the, the, the thing about it is, as you said, they fight 10 times a year. Hmm. So they, they are fighting 10 times a year on the same terrain. It's their home field, right? We hopefully in the United States Army will never be the uh, home team in combat, right? I mean, we always want to go somewhere else and, and be the visiting team, so to speak. So I would be cautious when people say, well, it's rigged for them to have the advantage. Of course, they live and fight on that terrain, Mm -hmm. just like we would go and and, uh, fight uh, an enemy, a competitor somewhere else uh, on their home turf. As far as what would I define as winning? Yes, you can win tactically. There's no doubt. Uh, are you going to win every fight? No, it's not realistic. It's not really designed that way because as soon as you start doing well, we're going to turn up the heat on you a little bit. We're going to make it a little bit more complex. And and we're going to take you right. We want to take you right to that point where kind of like lifting weights where it hurts, but that's the growth. Doing something that is easy, you're not really growing, right? So we want to take you to the point where where it's just you need that spotter, right? And uh, the OCs are your spotter in this case. They're, they're helping you along and they're, they're coaching, teaching, mentoring. Great partners. It's not like it was 30 years ago, uh, 20 years ago. They are on your team. They want you to be successful. So they're spotting you throughout the process. So I would tell you at every echelon, success is getting better. Wake up every day getting better at what you do. If you do that, and if you find as a leader ways to improve your organization, again, from squad, platoon, company, battalion, brigade, 
if you do that, brother, that's success because you're fighting the finest opposing force in the best army in the world. So if you can get better every day and if you acquit yourself well at the National Training Center or the JRTC, brother, you're doing pretty good. So what advice, sir, then would you have to that incoming brigade commander? They're you know, going to be giving guidance to the force. Yeah, so I've had this conversation, again, blessed to have been uh, stationed out there as we had uh, brigade commanders come through. You have these conversations uh, as you're taking them through and kind of doing the recons and leading up to the process. My first advice, know what you want to fix and don't try to fix a hundred different things. So as you go through and the OCs are telling you, they're gonna give you a list. Here's 28 things you can do better. You as the commander, focus on three to five things because it's not possible for you. This Now this is all, so this is Colonel Leland Blanchard's insight. This may not match uh, what other people would tell you. I just don't think it's possible for you to try to fix 25 things over the course of the next 48 to 72 hour cycle and expect that your soldiers in the fight can make those improvements on all of those things. But what, what American soldiers are really, really good at are focusing on the things that the commander emphasizes. And if you emphasize two to three, maybe four things for the next 48 hours, and you're clear, hey, I want to get better, and this is how I define getting better, and here's how I'm going to help you, oh yeah, you're gonna get a lot better. You're gonna get better quicker, and then hopefully, uh, the next 48, 72 hour cycle, you're going to have three to five different things that you're going to work on. And so as a, as a commander, that would be my overarching uh, recommendation or insight. Don't try to fix everything. You're going to be frustrated. Again, the entire purpose of this exercise is to highlight and point out places that we can get better. It's, it's the nature of what we're doing. But the pressure, particularly when the force comm commander is showing up tomorrow uh, or your division commander is showing up or your tag is showing up, I got to fix everything. You're, you're the commander. What are the three to five things? And then just have the, uh, the intestinal fortitude to look at the commander, uh, look at that four star and say, sir, you, you, are, you are not wrong. Uh, we got to get better in those areas. However, as the brigade commander, based on what I've seen in my unit over the last year, two years, uh, these are the things that I'm, I'm focused on for the next couple of days. And this is why, and this is what I think is going to come out of this. And my experience is as long as you're able to do that and root it uh, in logic and be able to really articulate why those are your things, they may look at you and say, yeah, but you gotta fix these other things. But, but my guess, uh, maybe an educated guess in this case, is that behind the scenes, they'll say, hey, that commander, he's on it. Because everybody knows you can't fix everything in the next 48 hours. That's just not realistic. So then looking at a well-executed rotation, based on your experience, you know, have you seen a well-executed rotation? And or you know, can you give an example of what that looks like a little bit? Sure. So I think uh, the frustration is everybody comes out of a rotation feeling like they just got beat on for the last, really, again, so 14 days in the box, but the five days of RSOI, and you just, 
you see, you tend to see the negative, right? Because we don't really spend a lot of time saying, hey, double down on what you did well. So yes, rotations can be well executed. We've seen, for example, uh, the 116th out of Idaho on the back end with their maintenance, phenomenal job, record setting uh, performance on getting their equipment squared away. That showed that they learned a lot, that they had processes, that they did you know, some, extraordinarily, uh, some extraordinary learning uh, to get there, to be able to turn those tanks uh, and Bradleys around and get them fixed. I think what you got to do is you got to focus not on, hey, did we come in here? If, you're go if, if your expectation as a leader is, if I don't win three or four fights outright against the out four, then it wasn't a successful rotation, then I think you don't understand uh, really what you're trying to, to accomplish while you're out there. I think a successful rotation, well executed, you're able to really shine in some areas and commanders at all echelons uh, are going to walk out of there saying, I know exactly where my challenges are and what I need to fix. That to me, now of course that's the beginning, right? Because now you got to follow up and actually address those things over the coming years. But to me, that's a successful, well, to, well put together rotation. You go out there and the learning curve is steep, but your soldiers are motivated. Man, that's and yes, and, and so the other thing I would tell you, uh, some insight, typically, I can tell you by day three or four of RSOI, how you're probably going to do in the fight at the battalion level. And, and the way I know that is I just walk around and kind of gauge the attitude of soldiers. You'll see some soldiers and you talk to them and you say, hey, you know, are you, you know, getting ready to go out into the desert? It's 112, 115 degrees. It's going to be, uh, you know, miserable. Hmm. Units that do well, you'll see those soldiers saying, hey, you know what, sir, I'm here to learn. This is going to be an awesome experience. I've always wanted to test myself, right? And then you start to talk to the leaders and the leaders are engaging their soldiers and they're motivated and they're, they're realistic. They acknowledge, hey, it's going to be tough. We're going into a fight. Of course, it's going to be tough. Conditions, the op four, learning. But boy, I'm looking forward to it. And this is going to be awesome. Those units, those units do very, very well. Because when things go wrong, a track gets thrown. Uh, a helicopter, you know, a movement doesn't, uh, doesn't show up on time. And now you're delayed. Those units who are motivated and find ways to make things happen and approach it with a great attitude, they just overcome obstacles. The units where you, you find a lot of uh, anxiety and angst, usually leader-driven. Oh, no, we're, how are we going to do? I don't know if we're going to do well. We're not prepared. We didn't set the conditions. And when they focus on that, I usually like to go out and visit them about day three, uh, <laughs> really see how they're getting along. And you'll see people out there in the desert kind of, struggling and uh your attitude just doesn't get better your approach to things doesn't get better in 120 degree heat you know so oh, yeah. you got to go in highly motivated and prepared so let's talk about battalions and battalion staff then i know line battalions and support battalions have different roles what's kind of your advice to a battalion moving into a national training center rotation yeah, so I think it's uh, so staff fundamentals, roles and responsibilities, being able to transition. Uh, so if you can, if you understand your role 
uh, and your responsibilities. If you have your NCOs uh, engaged, if people are moving and getting ahead, in other words, not waiting to be told something that they know has got to be done, update the maps, change out batteries, all that, prepare to move. Don't just have stuff you know strewn about, be organized. If you do that, at the staff level, that takes care again of all that anxiety and kind of falling behind, you know, perpetually being behind, having your products prepared. And then I'll go back to what I said at the beginning, staff fundamentals, basics. Don't try to do crazy stuff. Don't, uh, you're not there so that we can identify the next patent. You're not there so that we can identify, uh, you know, the next uh, general marshal. That's, that's, uh, let that stuff take care. If you're the, if you are the next, uh, general Patton, believe me, uh, we will see that in, in just the way you conduct yourself and, um, the way you operate, but it really comes down to fundamentals. Just block and tackle. Don't get fancy communications. Make sure your comms are up and, uh, make sure that you are not taking 98% of the planning time and then sending out an awesome plan that your subordinates so that those company commanders have about an hour uh, to figure it out and execute. I would rather, uh, personally, I'd rather see a, a fairly solid plan that has a good grasp rooted in fundamentals, mm-hmm. good grasp and understanding of the situation, and commander's intent is very clear. Allow those company commanders to really start doing their things, because remember, company commanders, the staff is them, is the commander, the first sergeant, the XO, or maybe an RTO. Uh, they don't have a, a, an S1. They don't have an S4 to kind of work through those things and figure those things out. There's not uh, 48 people putting that plan together. So maximize that time that they have. Speaking of staffs, you've talked about logistics for a few, to- a few times now. Let's say I took on the role of, as a new S4 for a battalion. What advice would you give to that battalion staff in order to best prepare? Yeah, don't wait. Uh, so waiting for for uh, requests to come up, you are already losing. Uh, you are you, as a S4. If you don't do, uh, if you don't get ahead uh, in the logistics game for any organization, this is the thing that is hardest for them. When you are at home station, you are never more than a few minutes away from what you need. When you get out to the NTC, if that water is late, if you if you're an hour behind. Don't, don't, it's not just an hour. The enemy is out there and may delay it for another six hours. If the fuel is late because you waited until someone asked you for fuel, you're losing. You can't exploit the initiative. I've, I've seen where, so a great example, I watched a battle and uh, you could, just watching it, you started to sense right that, that moment, that inflection point where the blue four had the had the op four on the run like there was it was it was about to just it was going to turn into a tactical victory for for the visiting uh team then they ran out of ammo and they ran out of gas fuel and they couldn't pursue so out of the uh out of the uh jaws of victory uh we snatched uh, you know at best a push uh lost the tactical advantage and it was all because, you know, when you, when you pulled it back, it was, well, we were waiting on them to tell us, uh, you know, how much ammo they needed. 
Well, when you're fighting in your tank or you're out there on the ground and you've got your 240 going, uh, you don't have time to say, hey, I need more ammo. I need 1,250 rounds and I need it to be here at you know 1,600. The sustainment community, and they're, they're, you know, every day we get a little bit better because it's, it's tremendously different than coin, right? Where we'd all go back to the fob and refuel and rearm and do all that. The sustainment community is, is, has got to monitor the fight, has got to understand distance, has got to understand time. It has to do, uh, has to get into the, uh, into the push business, uh, push stuff out there. When someone calls you and says, hey, I'm going to need fuel, your response should be, it's about three minutes out. I was listening to the radio. It's on its way. It'll be right there. When, when you hear uh, a lot of contact happening, well, they're expending ammunition. Go ahead and start planning and work with the three shop and, and really the two shop as well and push that stuff. Get it going now. If you do that, you'll be successful. Nobody wants to get to the point where they were ready to declare victory and they just needed to go over that next hill and they couldn't get there. Based on your experience then, you know, what's an example of a unit who did really well at something at a rotation and like the converse of that where something happened unexpected? Okay, so, uh, so and I won't say unit names. Uh, I'll, just, I'll just say, uh, you know, a little, little vignette maybe uh, of each doing well a unit surprised us and the op four uh when they ld'd uh, when they went across the line of departure um man they went right into the fight and they did not stop they didn't try to go across the ld and kind of pause and and have everyone come together it it was it was awesome to watch they just kept on going and as soon as they had contact they were prepared for it they had integrated fires. They, they went, I mean, they just took it to the op four and it was pretty awesome to watch. And the op four was just shocked. And, and for about three days were on their heels. I will tell you back to the sustainment part, the whole reason they weren't able to sustain that is because they came to a culmination point logistically. And it really, it just, it changed the whole, they won the first fight, were prepared to win the second fight and had to culminate and the op four took advantage, all of a sudden had the momentum for the, ro uh, the rest of the rotation. But that was amazing to watch. I mean, they went, when they went into the fight, they literally went ready to, to go to guns early. Uh, and it was pretty amazing. Uh, I'll just share this, uh, this isn't a unit kind of thing, but one of the funniest things, uh, it wasn't funny to them. One of the funniest things that I've seen so I'm, I'm out there uh, with an organization. I'm down at the battalion level and, uh, you know, I'm observing and I'm, I'm, I'm doing, uh, doing my thing. And uh, I'm standing there talking to a, a, a two-star, a visiting two-star, and uh, kind of talking through the scenario. And I knew that they were getting ready to get uh, attacked uh, by the op four. So, of course, you know, listening over the radio, know it's coming. So I'm telling, uh, I'm telling the uh, general officer what's about to happen. Let's position ourselves over here. And he wanted to see, hey, let me see uh, how they kind of go through the uh, medical process. I'm really interested in, in the casualty uh, flow. So we, we positioned right next to the battalion aid station. And I'll never forget watching uh, 
four soldiers carrying another soldier on a litter, probably two, 250 meters, right? Just, they were smoked. They get, they, they walk up and they're arguing over where the battalion aid station is. And when I say that they were within five feet, if they, if they just reached out and touched, they, they could touch the battalion aid station. But people were so caught up, they were so tired and, and so caught up in the fight that I watched them pick this soldier up and go to the other side of, uh, hmm. of that little area. And uh, they, they probably were out of the fight, really probably for the next day because they smoked themselves. But that's that, that tunnel vision. They, they, everyone was running around and somebody, I mean, obviously they have a, a, a wounded soldier on the uh, litter. Someone could have said, Hey, you're here. The, the PA was inside taking care of, they, they didn't, they just kind of allowed events to overcome. Now that's a very, you know, that's a, a specific, a couple of soldiers, but I'll tell you what, you see units at the battalion level doing the same thing. It's right there. But there's so much activity going on and they've and no one has kind of risen above that and, and kind of looked down and said, hey, let me sort this out and get through the chaos to see what's happening, that they'll run around the battlefield when it's when it's right there. All they got to do is just reach out and touch it, just like those soldiers at that battalion aid station. All they needed to do was go another five feet and say, here he is. Uh, instead, again, funny for me to watch them uh, go I mean, a long way carrying, carrying that soldier. Wasn't funny to them when they realized that I, I think they pretty much wanted to just dump them and say, let's, let's move on. <laughs> Recently, I was out in Black Horse Cave, a briefing on a lot of the technology neutralization stuff they're doing when focusing on fighting those near-peer threats. What are things that battalion staffs can do specifically to kind of prepare for that technology neutralization or mitigation occurring where they're not able to use as many platforms as they usually have available. Uh, so I think the first thing that they've got to do is understand that uh, we no longer have an overwhelming technological advantage. Uh, there are some places where our, our competitors uh, may be a little bit ahead of us at times, you know, as we move into the future. And so if you understand that uh, fundamentally, then you start to understand that you can't be overly reliant on technology. It's at the end of the day, it's about human beings. It's about our soldiers. It's about leaders. It's about leaders understanding how to take the information and make decisions in a timely manner to put, you know, to, to make sure that the conditions are set for success. So understanding that that technological advantage may not be there. So don't be overly reliant on it. Uh, being prepared to transition back to analog uh, seamlessly. What's your plan? When the technology goes down, for whatever reason, Honestly, maybe someone just walked across cable and, and unplugged uh, some things. But when that goes down, if it takes you an hour or two hours to kind of figure out where we are and, and do the, the analog, go back to the maps and, and uh, stickers and, and sticky notes, it's going to be a real challenge for you because then it's going to be the same going back. So you're losing uh, a lot of precious time and opportunity and you allow then the enemy to get inside of your uh, decision cycle, whereas we're trying to get inside of his. So again, I, I think it's about fundamentals and then just making sure you understand how to put your comms up. Now there's lots of little things that people will talk about, you know, spreading your antenna, uh, you know, getting all of that array apart so that the enemy can't see one big 
hot red blob on the map. I don't know what that is, but if it's a really large uh, red blob on the uh, electromagnetic spectrum, let me just go ahead and fire uh, you know, artillery in there and see what happens. Uh, I can just send one or two uh, observers out there and maybe do a lot of damage. Hmm. So those tactical things your OCs will really help you uh, with, but I, I think the overarching thing is really understanding, I can't, I'm going to keep going back to fundamentals. It's about blocking and tackling. My radios work. Uh, I have the ability, I know where I am on the battlefield and my, my, my subordinates understand my intent, the task and purpose, task and purpose, say it again, task and purpose. If they know what you want them to do and what that's supposed, why it's supposed to happen. I mean, if nothing else, the soldiers will do it just so, Hey, if I knock this out, I'm done and I can eat or sleep. Okay. So tell me where the enemy's at. Uh, tell me when I can engage the enemy. Tell me when I have to stop engaging the enemy and tell me, you know, when I can uh, eat and sleep. That's really what soldiers want to know. And sometimes I think we make it too complicated and we start to be overly reliant on technology. I've heard typically National Guard units do really well at the company level just because the continuity we have with soldiers staying in the unit for such a long period of time. What are a few specific things that you can recommend to company level leaders when preparing for a National Training Center rotation? Yeah, I think so. This is where uh, really guard units do have a big advantage in the fact that you know your soldiers, you know their strengths, and you know their weaknesses. You have, uh, over time, you develop kind of that, uh, that unspoken communication, right? Uh, and I think that, that if leaders can harness that, it's amazing. Because again, you're not going to win. If you win... How do I say this? You're not going to win because one soldier, you know, did some great staff planning. Mm -hmm. You are going to win because a lot of squads, a lot of platoons, and a lot of companies were ultimately successful, enabled by battalion and brigade operations. But it's, I would tell you, again, I'm going to keep saying this. It's about fundamentals. It's about making sure you've got batteries at the company level that work. It's about making sure that my soldiers know what I want to do. It's about knowing what the SOPs are so that you don't have to stand around and plan activities that, that you should just know how to do. And, and again, so the, the, the benefit there, the, the uh, advantage is you're there for a while together as an organization. So you know mm -hmm. what I'm going to do, a uh, mission brief, what it's going to include. You should know, uh, hey, when we're going to do a company, uh, you know, op order, who's, who's doing the putting the, together this and who's doing that, what roles and responsibilities are to kind of, uh, again, give the platoons more time to plan and rehearse and get after those things. So those are the advantages. Now the other, uh, now the downside sometimes is we can at times allow some of the little things to slip. And we gotta be real cautious about that because it's dangerous out there, just like in combat. I mean, there's. You know, it's unfortunate, but we, uh, we suffer uh, fatalities at the training centers uh, each year. Uh, uh, again, we do everything we can to mitigate that, but that really comes down to engaged leadership. If you see something that is not right, whatever your rank is, but especially for leaders, fix it, address it, don't wait. And if we do that, uh, again, as you mentioned, because of our relationships, because of the longevity we have in those organizations, 
It really is a, it, it's an advantage. And uh, standing on the hill, when you're watching the fight, just talking to people who, you know, other OCs, or you're talking to, uh, you know, maybe the Op 4 uh, commander, he'll start talking about, hey, that's that's first platoon alpha company, because you start to see, I mean, they, the Op 4 begin to know, hey, avoid these guys, they're really on top of it, and they're going to go elsewhere. So you do see it, and the Op 4 sees it, uh, quite frankly. I'm sure it's easy to feel lost, like as a company in, in a brigade level exercise. What's the, your advice to company commanders specifically, or, or even company level leadership in, as a whole, as far as managing that? Yeah, so don't wait. Uh, don't wait on hire to tell you to do the things that you're supposed to do. Uh, that will help you. So you'll end up buying yourself more time. Hey, I may not know uh, what exactly we're going to do. I may not know if we're the main effort, but I know we're going on the attack soon. So let me make sure that I start doing my PCC, PCCs, PCIs. Let me make sure that that I've got, hey, EXO, have, have we done all of our ordering? Do we have, where are we at with maintenance? Hey, platoon sergeants, do we have, have we conducted test fires? Are we prepared to go into this? And you start to do those things instead of waiting to be told. All of a sudden, when you're told the mission, you have time to focus on the important stuff related mm -hmm. specifically to that mission, while a lot of other people are, okay, well, now we've got to do the maintenance. No, no, brother, our maintenance is done. We are up. I know what I'm about to do. Shoot, let's get after it. Let's do rehearsals. And you can start targeting and focusing on the things that you want to get after, as opposed to, I got to do all these other things to get there, in which case now all of a sudden, hey, the battalion commander's uh, on the radio saying, move now. You know, and that's the other thing that happens. Just because we say the enemy will attack it, uh, say we're in the defense, just because we believe they'll, they'll attack at 1400. Uh, if you are going to plan to be ready to defend at 1400, they're watching you and they're going to attack at, uh, say, noon. And now you're, you're really, you're trying to fight and prepare for the fight at the same time. Not very effective. So at the company level, it's about buying yourself and your battalion commander as much decision space and time as humanly possible. And that is only through uh, rigorous enforcement of your SOPs, uh, time management, making sure that people are, are utilizing every opportunity to do the right thing and get ahead so that when the call comes, you, you, you are the company of choice to lead this fight. So we always ask this of all of our guests, sir, and that is if there's one resource that you would recommend to soldiers or units out there getting ready to prepare for something like this, what would it be? Hmm. Uh, so for the NTC, I would say tap into people that have been there uh, as much as you can. They, so NTC and JRTC, both in Center for Army Lessons Learned, they, they put out uh, materials mm -hmm. digitally and uh, printed materials, uh, you know, trends, analysis. You don't have to spend a lot of time, but I'm, I'm going to tell you, if you believe that your experience is going to be vastly different than everyone else who's gone through in the last 12 months, I would ask what specifically, excuse me, what specifically have you done that's so different from everybody else who was preparing for that? And the answer is probably going to be not really that much different. So invest an hour and read what are they doing and then how are they fixing it? What are the trends that the OCs are seeing? You can really do a lot of, you can do a lot of good just by reading a little bit. 
and tapping into those existing resources, but it's powerful. Go talk to someone. Mm-hmm. You know, really, if you get the opportunity, so at the company level, if you're a uh, company commander, first sergeant, uh, platoon leader, uh, senior NCO, again, at all echelons, amazing experience. Go be a guest OC if you can. And if you can't, I get it. So if you can't do uh, that, that amount of time, go ride along for three days with the op four for someone else's rotation. See yourself through the op four's eyes. It is powerful to sit there and have a, uh, com- a fellow company commander who you're going to be fighting in a couple of months, sit there and say, in an hour, they're going to come through this way and they're going to go that way and they're going to turn left here. And you'll say, well, how do you know that? Oh, it's because you, you've seen them do it 10 times. No, it's because it's what our doctrine tells us to do. We've all gone to the same schools. We're going to fight a lot of times the same way. It's almost scary to sit there and have uh, someone that you know you're going to be fighting us wearing a different uniform, uh, so to speak, uh, looking at you saying, this is how, you, and I'm going to tell you you're going to do the same thing when you, uh, when you come here. It's powerful. You kind of answered my, my last question, which was, what's your advice to young leaders, I think, in the force right now? But do you have anything to add on to that outside of, like, taking the time and investing in uh, either being an OC or, or learning what you can? Yeah, for young leaders across the Army National Guard, I would just say, do ever, take every opportunity that you have to improve yourself and your organization. That doesn't mean you have to work full-time in your civilian career and then find 40 or 50 hours a week, you know, working for your guard organization. But you can do little things. You can, you know, when you see an article, send it to your soldiers, right? Just email it or text them. Just check up on your soldiers. The little things, be a good leader, be engaged in their lives, know what's going on in their lives. Be an interested leader. You will be amazed if you take an interest and I'm really talking to E5s, E6s, uh, lieutenants, uh, junior captains right now. It's amazingly powerful what your soldiers will do for you if they know you care. We know you care, but do they feel it, right? So do they feel like you care? Uh, do they feel like this is a professional organization, that your expectation is when they show up, they have high standards, uh, and they're going to meet those high standards? If they believe you are a professional at your job, if they believe that you care about them and they know what you want them to do, you're going to be an amazing uh, success story. And people will ask you constantly, how'd you do it? How'd you do it? What were you doing different? Hmm. Fundamentals of leadership. Again, fundamentals, but it's, it's hard work. It's easy for me to say that. Man, we know that's really hard some days. Some days it's just, you know, I mean, right now with the coronavirus going on, some days it's just hard, mm-hmm. right? Well, sir, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing some of your experiences and uh, wisdom and knowledge related to uh, National Training Center. Well, listen, I appreciate it. And uh, so I would offer this up again, uh, you know, in a previous podcast, I, I mentioned this, but I would ask anyone that's out there, if you've got some ideas, if you've got something that interests you, To be honest with you, if you just feel like, hey, I know this leader that I think should be, uh, you know, part of this podcast, or there is a particular person, I kind of heard some things, uh, you know, in the past that he or she said, and I'd be interested in hearing from them, let us know. Reach out to uh, the training division, uh, the leader development branch, 
and let them know, hey, I've, I've got this person. Send an email. I know they'll cover it uh, here in, uh, at the end, but, but this is for you. And so if there's something that we can help you with, bring something to you, please let us know. Uh, we want you to be uh, successful. And uh, ultimately, your success is our success. So uh, just let us know. And thank you. Thanks so much, sir. All right. If you'd like more information on any of the topics we discussed today, please contact us at our social media pages in the links below. Tune in to Leaders Recon over the next few weeks as we bring in today's leaders and pioneers to discuss their experiences, share their wisdom, and help you grow as a leader. We will also be announcing opportunities to sharpen your skills and enhance your toolbox as members in today's Army National Guard. See you next time. If you liked today's episode of Leaders Recon, please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.